Now, the time has come for us to select one courageous young man and woman for the honor of representing District 12 in the 74th Annual Hunger Games. As usual, ladies first. Where are you, Vivi? Come on, Anna. Well, come on, Anna. Volunteer. Uh, Mr. Mayor. I need to get out of here. You need to get out of here. No. Go find mom. No. Grim, go find mom. I know. No. So sorry. No. Find mom. No. Grim, leave. Go find mom. No. 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 Dramatic turn of events here in District 12. Yes, well. District 12's very first volunteer. Bring her up. What's your name? Katniss Everdeen. Well, I bet my hat that was your sister, wasn't it? Yes. Let's have a big hand for our very first volunteer, Katniss Everdeen. So Katniss Everdeen, the main character in the Hunger Games books and movie series that were out a few years ago, is faced in this moment with, with a life and death decision. So if you haven't read the books or seen the movies, the, the general outline, the plot is that there, uh, in, a, in a distant future, a civilization has had a civil war. And at the end of the war, those districts that were in rebellion against the centralized government are forced every single year to pick a young woman and a young man to fight to the death in a gladiatorial style combat that's broadcast is this mass, massive, grotesque spectacle, and it's been going on for, for years and years now, and Katniss volunteers in her sister's place uh, so that she doesn't have to fight in these games. And, and this life-or-death decision, the reason why I, I picked this clip in these movies is um, that's where our, our character, Esther, our, our main character in the sermon series where we're in right now, is faced this week. So we've been in this book as a part of our 2019 message series, 12 books of the Bible in 12 months. Esther is the month of July for us. Last week, Pastor Scott 
Scott kicked this off by laying a, a great foundation for the book itself and kind of the historical context that was going on in Esther's day. I encourage you to listen back to the podcast if you weren't able to be here last week because it really does set a great framework for the life and the, the dire circumstances that this young woman has faced in her life leading up to this point. And so to get into the, the, the rest of the story and, and the life and death decision that she has to make, we need to introduce a few more characters. So Esther chapter 3 and chapter 4 is where we're going to be this morning. If you have your Bible, you can open there. <clears throat> In Esther chapter 3, we learn a little bit more about uh, the, the Jewish people and their captivity having been brought to Babylon from Jerusalem at the time of their, uh, their being conquered by the Babylonian Empire. And, and they're in exile. And, and Esther herself is a Jewish woman, but she's not the only person of the Jewish uh, faith of the Jewish people in Babylon at the time. In fact, we meet that her, her cousin Mordecai is also a part of the palace guard, and he's uh, stationed in the same palace where Esther now lives as the queen. Mordecai is an interesting character. He's a fiery guy who we meet because he encounters another palace official named Haman in chapter 3. And Haman is the second most powerful man in the empire at the time. So Xerxes is the king on the throne. Haman is the chief of all of the nobles, meaning that he has Xerxes' ear, he can set and pass laws, and he does that very thing in, in Esther's life. And, and we're going to explore that a little bit. One day, these two have an encounter. Haman is walking through the palace courtyard where Mordecai is on as a, as a palace official. Everybody else in the courtyard, seeing the most, second most powerful man in their empire, bows down in reverence for his authority, for his presence there, all of them except for Mordecai. Mordecai does not bow down to Haman. Now, for us, that doesn't seem like a big deal. I mean, our culture, we don't have any real expectations on uh, physical representations of, of showing respect for, for people's authority, but consider where this was in the world. This is the Middle East or the Near East where even still to this day, people place a high level of priority on showing physical signs of respect for other people, especially those in authority. When I was a student at the University of Iowa, I had some friends who were from Saudi Arabia and some other parts of the Middle East and was getting to know them while they were studying there. And they would invite me over to their house to have dinner quite frequently. And it was great, some of the best food I ever had, but they would teach me about their culture too. So we'd sit on the floor, we would eat with our hands from one communal bowl, always with your right hand, never with your left hand. And you never showed the soles of your feet to somebody else, which was really hard because we sat cross-legged on the floor. And I'm not known for being a particularly flexible guy. So I did the best I could and they had grace for me. But uh, even still to this day, people in this part of the world place a lot of uh, significance on showing proper respect for people with, with your physical self. And Mordecai refused to do that. And he refused to do it in a public place. A lot of people saw this and it was deeply offensive to Haman. But something else happened. And, and we read about that in, in chapter three. He said he learned of Mordecai's nationality, that he was a Jewish person. So he decided it was not enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire empire. Now, this is, this is pretty extreme. It tells us a couple of important things. First, that, that anti-Semitism was, was a, a deep-rooted part of this culture already. That, that something else must have been going on at the time. That this probably wasn't an isolated incident for Haman to have such an extreme reaction to a personal slight. You know, that other things might be going on at the time, that even though this small portion of the Babylonian Empire, the Jewish population, was, was pretty small, they might have been causing problems. 
for, the, for this culture by the way that they lived. And the way they lived, what, what we learn here is that Mordecai, along with all the other people from, uh, from God's people, the, the Jewish people, refused to bow in worship to anybody but God. And that was a part of their identity, who they were. God is more important than any government, any system, and certainly any person. That's just a person. We worship God and nothing else. And that's very problematic when you're trying to run an empire that covers a number of different cultures and you're trying to weave them all together. Everybody needs to get along. Everybody needs to play by the rules. And God's people simply do not. You know, we read of other instances where this was happening in the Old Testament around the same time as these captivities. Uh, Pastor Scott mentioned one of them last week. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down just to the statue of the king, and they were thrown into a fiery furnace that God saved them from. This was a pattern of behavior with God's people, refusing to bow down in worship to any other system beside God, who, is, who alone deserves worship. And, and this attitude that, that God is alone deserving of worship is the most important thing in life carried over into the New Testament. Testament church, this attitude about God. And so when Jesus comes, when God sends His Son, Jesus Christ, God incarnate coming to earth, and Jesus begins this movement of His people to transform the world through His love, Christians adopt the same attitude, that there is no one alone besides Jesus who is King, no one who is in authority besides God, and He is our source and our object of worship forever and ever. And uh, on the screen, we, this is from 1 Peter 2, 9, so from the New Testament, from the Christian church. We, say, we quote this, recite this whenever we're doing a baptism because this is a part of our identity as God's people in the church. Let's read this together out loud. You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a special possession of God's own. And this is, this is the nature of what it means to belong to the movement of, of Christianity. A lot of people think that, that being a Christian means being a part of a religion or a tradition or a style of worship. And while those things might be part of it, the, what Christianity really is, is a movement that Jesus started continuing on this identity of, of God's people, chosen people who are released the world over to share His love and the transforming power of God's forgiveness and grace so that more and more people can receive that good news and have everlasting life and a purpose and a meeting and a relationship with Jesus. You, church, are a part of this movement. And I love how the King James Version actually translates some of this. We don't use the King James a lot, but one of the translations for this, it'll be on the screen, the King James Version actually says, we're a peculiar people, a peculiar people. And it doesn't mean peculiar in the sense of we do some funny things sometimes. We do a lot of funny things sometimes. We're pretty strange. But what it means, peculiar, is that we are unique unique among the people of the world. And, and when, when the Bible tells us that Jesus was the firstborn of a new creation, and when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are actually reborn. You are a new person. Everything who you were before is gone. You receive a new identity in Jesus Christ. You are a, a, a new in this relationship with God, a unique people. That is who we are, and that's our identity. So this, this attitude of placing God higher than any other system of authority, as it carries over in the New Testament church, it causes the same kinds of issues for the Roman Empire. You know, the Babylonian Empire is long gone, Esther and Mordecai are long gone, but the Christian church continues this attitude in the Roman Empire, and that's what led to so many scores of Christians being martyred for their faith in the early church. Rome passed laws saying it was illegal for you to be a Christian. Why? 
They weren't violent. They weren't rioting. They weren't doing any of those things. They simply were refusing to belong to that fabric of Roman culture that says Caesar is God and you must serve in these sorts of ways and you must be a part of our armies and you must uh, get along in in our system of government. And and the Christians were saying, no, we're not going to do any of that because God is God. Jesus is king and you don't have any authority over me. And that was disruptive. It was upsetting to the Roman culture. And so they put many, many people to death because of their faith in God through Jesus Christ. And not all of those martyrs were men. Not all of them were men. Now, we're talking through the book of Esther, an important book of the Bible that that God uses to show us uh, how He uses women in leadership in important places in culture uh, as as redeemers for their people and and protectors and rulers. And, And a question that I often get is, are there examples in Scripture and even in the early church, of women in leadership. Because at Lutheran Church of Hope, we have women who are pastors, and we have women who lead worship and who teach and who are a part of leadership committees in the council. And and we value women in leadership because we see it as a biblical principle, and it's in the Bible, but it's also in extra-biblical sources around the New Testament church. There are a lot of existing documents of other things that were going in churches. The church was exploding in the first century. Thousands and thousands of people were coming to faith in Jesus Christ. It was spreading like wildfire, and women were leading in those movements. And I want to introduce you to two of them today, Perpetua and Felicity. And you can read about their story. There's a document that exists from the first century, second century called The Passion of Perpetua and Felicity. Other theologians and writers throughout the history of the church have written about them, Augustine, Tertullian, on and on. They were, they were eventually sanctified. They were revered as saints in the church because of their role that they played. They were born in the late 100s. And so Paul finished planting his churches in, in the you know, 70s, 80s. These women were born about 100 years later when, again, the, the Christian movement was taking root and it was growing and it was spreading, they lived in Carthage, which was on the northern edge of of the continent of Africa. That's how huge the Roman Empire was. So they're living in Africa, and Perpetua, we meet in her story, was already a leader in their community. She was well-born, she was well-educated, she had money, she she had property, her family was very well-respected, and and she is presented with the message of Jesus Christ, the good news that, that God has sent His Son into the world. He died on the cross to set you free from your sins, to pay the punishment that is owed to you. She hears this message, she receives the Holy Spirit, and she gives her life to Jesus. She says, I am now going to be one of those peculiar people called after Jesus Christ. Who I was before is not who I am anymore. I'm going to follow Jesus with my life. And she is publicly baptized, and then she is arrested and sentenced to death. Because, again, the the empire at the time could not tolerate somebody in such an influential position now opening up her home and using her resources for church, to lead the church. They just couldn't have it. So she's put into prison and sentenced to die, and that's where we meet Felicity, who is also there among another number, a bunch of Christians from their community, all in prison together. And the rest of the story basically follows Perpetua's father, who keeps visiting her in prison, and he brings her son. She had a son at the time and and a family, and he's bringing her son to prison to, to, to plead with her to give all of this up. Just recant your confession. Uh, say that you don't believe in Jesus. You have to, you're going to die for this. You're going to lose our reputations and yours and your money and your family and all of the things that you're going to give up just because you believe in Jesus. That doesn't make any sense. And so he keeps coming and, and saying, you need to give all this up. You, need to, you can just even pretend like you're lying. It doesn't matter. But you need to tell them you don't believe in Jesus. Otherwise, you will die. And every time he comes to visit her, she says, this is worth it to me to die for. Jesus, again, is more important than anything in my life. Who I am now is not who I was then. 
I'm willing to give up all of those things, including my very own life, because of the love and the identity that I have in Jesus Christ. And that's what happens. Perpetua and Felicity are led out into a Roman Colosseum with, another, with a group of Christians, and they, are, they all fight and die as gladiators, these women gladiators in the Colosseum dying for their faith. And they're unarmed. Wild animals and men with swords take them down because of their love and their devotion to Jesus Christ. And you can imagine if there were bunches and bunches of people all willing to do that in the Roman Empire, how that just wouldn't work. But it kept on happening. It kept on happening. One of the interesting things that uh, Perpetua said to her father the last time he comes and visits her in prison, and he's on his knees at this point begging her, just give all this up, it's not worth it. She says this in Latin, facta sum masculus. And uh, I had to ask my friend, my friend uh, Dr. Amy Brown wrote a book about this, and so I had to ask her, you know, what does this mean and, and what would this have sounded like? She said that this, this literally is translated, uh, today I'm becoming like a man or I'm taking up masculinity, but in their culture it would have sounded like, today I'm, I'm going to be courageous. Today I'm going to have strength. And, and to me it sounded like the phrase that we have in our culture, today I'm going to man up. I'm going to man up and do this. You can, you can plead with me and, and ask me to lie and tell me it's not true, but I'm actually going to man up and go out and die for my faith because I believe in Jesus and he is worth it to me to die for. These women, like Esther and Mordecai, refused to allow anything else to strip them of the identity they found in their new relationship with Jesus Christ. That, that, that the, the, the prize, the treasure of following Christ, of knowing that, that your life has been transformed, that regardless of when and where you die, you know that you're going to be with him in heaven forever and ever. All of these things that they believed, they were unwilling to let anyone else tell them to give up, that they should just quit, that they should move on and pretend like it's not real. They would not sacrifice their identity in Christ for anything, anything at all. This is actually a theme that comes up uh, in the books and the movies and the Hunger Games, these, these issues of identity as these young heroic characters are forced to participate in a corrupt system of gladiatorial style games and they start asking questions about who they really are and, and are they losing parts of themselves because they have to do these things. So let's watch as they explore these issues. Listen to them. Yeah. I just don't want them to change me. How would they change you? I don't know. And they turn me into something I'm not. I just don't want to be another piece in their game, you know? You mean you won't kill anyone? No. I mean, you know, I'm sure I would, just like anybody else when the time came, but... Yeah, I just keep wishing I could think of a way to show them that they don't own me. You know, if I'm, if I'm gonna die, I want to still be me. So I hope by now you're starting to ask yourself as a part of this, this story and you as a part of God's people, what are the ways in your life that, that you're able to show other people your devotion to God or that God is the most important thing in your life, that Jesus is higher than any other, other authority in your life? Are there ways that we as a church are doing that, where we are publicly proclaiming that Jesus is king and that there is no other system or no other authority higher than him for us, that, that, that we will worship him alone? with who we are, 
Or are, are we tempted to, to keep our heads down, to, to fit in with the fabric of our society, to resist that call to be a peculiar people set apart for God's purposes? Do we just try to fit in? Because that was Esther's temptation today. She, she is presented with what, what Mordecai has discovered. So Haman has, is now passed a law that said, we are going to pick a day where we will eradicate all of the Jewish people in the empire. And there's a day that the Bible names and the law was passed and Mordecai finds out about this plot that all of his people, including himself, are going to be put to death for their faith and he decides he needs to get Esther to talk to the king about it. Esther is the queen and so Mordecai, through an intermediary because he can't get into the palace where she is, says, you need to go and talk to the king. You, need to, you are the only chance we have for somebody from our people to advocate for our salvation. You have to go and talk to the king about this. Otherwise, we are all going to die. And Esther is faced with his life or death decision because it's not just as simple as having a conversation. She says this in chapter 4, all the king's officials and even the people in the provinces know that anyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited is doomed to die unless the king holds out his gold scepter. And the king has not called for me to come to him for 30 days. So it wasn't as though Esther, even though she's the queen, can't just go in and talk to the king. There were a lot of systems in place to protect the king in this massive empire so that no one could just walk in and, and, and kill him. In fact, archaeologists have kind of put together what this palace in Susa would have looked like, and they, they found that there would be a, a, a throne room in the very center of a lot of different rooms and hallways. You had to go through different gates to get all the way to the inner court where the king would sit. And what Esther is saying here is, I can't just show up in that inner court and demand an audience and start making demands of the king. That's not how this works. And Xerxes was known to be a cruel ruler. Uh, Scott talked about some of that last week. He, he might just kill me for doing this, for breaking these rules. Palace guards might just kill me for walking in. This, this, this could cost me my life, what you're asking me to do. This could cost me everything. And Mordecai's response to this is interesting. It's in, it's in three different parts, and each part, I think, deserves some attention because it all builds up on itself. Mordecai is making an argument here that we want to pay attention to. The first thing he says to Esther is, don't think for a moment that because you're in this palace, you will escape when all other Jews are killed. Basically saying, you're, you're still a part of God's people. You're still a part of what he is doing in the world, and, and we're all in this together, and that's true for the church. The church is the family of God. The church is the body of Christ. We are all in this together. Each one of us is a part of God's movement. And what this is, is costly. Jesus tells us that to belong to his people, to be a part of the movement of, of his people around the world, to spread his love, costs something, costs everything. One of the things that surprises me the most still to this day is how the early church was able to grow so fast and that at this time in history, the church is growing faster than it ever has around the world when Jesus was so honest about how costly it was to follow him. Jesus teaches in Luke 9.23, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross daily and follow me. And this was not a metaphor. Jesus wasn't speaking illustratively here or philosophically saying literally there's a cross involved. I'm going to die on a cross. Many of his disciples died on a cross. Uh, a historian and researcher, David Barrett, estimated that almost 70 million Christians have died in the last 2,000 years because of their faith in Jesus Christ. It is real. It is costly, this call to follow Jesus. It costs everything. Now, the reality for us in the United States is that our physical lives are not on the line for our faith in Jesus. No one is going to persecute us physically because of our relationship with God. We don't live in that world, thankfully. 
I'm grateful for that. And I'm not going to tell you that if you're not willing to go to a part of the world where that's not the case, where people are still put to death for their faith in, put to death for their faith in Jesus, that that makes you less of a Christian because that's not true. Because there are more parts of your life than just your physical self. More parts of who you are than just your physical body. No one's going to come after you physically, but, but what about your social life? Is that something you've been willing to surrender to Jesus? What about your private life? The things that nobody sees, are those the things that you've been willing to surrender to Jesus? Your work life, your, your neighborhood, all the different, your financial life, anything you can think of, Jesus says, those are the things that you're going to surrender if you want to be a part of my movement. Now, the interesting thing that Mordecai says next is that even if you're not there, it says to Esther, even if you're not willing to speak up, and for all of us, even if you're not willing to sacrifice all of your life for the cause of following Jesus Christ, God still loves you. God still loves you. That, that, that if you're not willing to sacrifice anything for God, that will not change how he feels about you and his plans for the world. He says, if you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place. Basically, what he's saying is that if God's plans, if God's purposes are dependent on my doing something about them, we're all in a lot of trouble because that's not going to happen. Each one of us are faithless and we struggle and we doubt and we don't know if we can actually surrender all of these things. And that's not going to stop God's love from changing the world. That's not going to stop the blood of Jesus Christ from ransoming sinners all over the world. This is something that, that Mordecai knew about God because the prophets at the time were writing about this. So Jeremiah was alive the same time, writing prophecies about God. Isaiah was writing a few generations earlier than, than Jeremiah, reminding God's people of who God says he is. And that's the real role a prophet plays in the life of our, our, our movement, of the Christian movement, reminding us who God says he is. What does the Bible tell us about God and his identity? So Isaiah writes this in chapter 46, remember the things I have done in the past. This is God speaking through Isaiah. For I alone am God. I am God and there is no one like me. Only I can tell you the future before it happens. Every Everything I plan will come to pass. Everything I plan will come to pass, for I do what I wish. That's God. If you have a view of God that, that says it's up to you, it's dependent on you and your faithfulness, then that's too small because that's not who God is. I think one of the terrible lies that the church has told for, for a few generations, at least in my recent memory, is that, is that if you don't do everything for God, if you're not willing to go overseas and die for Jesus, if you're not willing to give all your money to the church or plant churches or, or whatever, whatever you might hear about what it means, if you don't do everything for God, then that's going to have consequences for other people. You know, the lie that I was told as, as a young guy, if you, don't, if you don't share your faith with your friend and they die, they're going to hell and it's your fault. And that is wrong. That is not biblical. That is not who God is. Kyle read Psalm 103 before. That's who God is, the God of immeasurable love. And the God who is so big that his plans cannot be stopped. God's love and his kingdom expansion will not be stopped. We sang a song about it, that every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That will happen. All that God is saying is you are invited to participate. If you want to be a part of what God is doing, if you want to see lives transformed around you, if you want to see, uh, you know... Kids' faces light up when we, when we have thousands of them here for VBS. If you want to be a part of that, seeing God transform lives, you're welcome to it. God has no interest in guilting you into doing anything. That's not the God we serve. If you're willing to do nothing for God, He still loves you. And that's the type of church that we want to be too. 
You know, frequently you'll hear us ask, you know, if you want to volunteer for things like Taste of Hope or VBS or whatever it is that we've got coming up, we'll always ask if you want to volunteer, if you want to participate. Uh, we're doing a, a big building campaign where we asked for some money so we can be able to expand our space and reach more people. All of those things we want you to know come with no strings attached. We don't want you to feel guilted into doing any of that. All we're doing is inviting you to participate because we think that what God is doing here is pretty great. And we want you to be a part of it, to know that you make a difference. The gifts and abilities that God has given you matter. And that you could see God use you and, and work through you in some profound and tremendous ways. But if you decide that, that you want to do nothing, none of that, this is still your church. You are still a part of this people where you can hear about and experience the love of God all the time. Because we have no interest in guilting you into doing anything either. That's not the God we serve. That's not the church we are. And Jesus teaches about this. Jesus teaches about what kind of joy those sacrificial things should bring us. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. There's actually some, a lot going on here. Here's a person who Jesus describes has something, has enough to be able to go and buy something else. He's already got security. He owns things. But he discovers something that is worth infinitely more. In your life, even if you haven't made a decision to follow Jesus yet, you do have things. You have an identity. You have what you would describe as yourself. But when you encounter the love and the forgiveness and the grace of Jesus Christ, is any of that worth that treasure? The inestimable worth of a relationship eternally with God in heaven through Jesus Christ. And yeah, it costs everything. But what could be better than that? So for joy over it, we give up all of who we were to find our new life in Jesus Christ. And we got to see, I think, a little picture of that. At least I did. I thought this was pretty great. We got to see a, a glimpse of what it's like to give up sacrificially, to sacrifice a great deal in order to achieve and, and attain something better. Uh, the U.S. Women's National Team won their second consecutive World Cup, and everybody became a soccer fan for like a month. Myself included, I'll confess, I do not typically watch soccer matches, but I watched these and it was great. It was great to see and to hear stories about women who were willing to sacrifice their, their time, their effort, their energy, and things that we don't even know about so that they could achieve something more, do something big together as a team. And so I want you to watch this last clip and ask yourself as you're watching this, do you think any of these women showed up to the World Cup out of obligation or duty that they felt like they just had to be there. Let's watch this. It's written on our hearts. It's in our DNA. The 2019 Women's World Cup finally upon us. The deepest pool in World Cup history. You can see what it means to them all. There's something in our blood to build a better day. What heroics might we see? France with the pressure of being the host nation. Survives. Repeat. Oh, goal! The U.S. advances. The French are up. 
sure looks like they felt guilted into doing that. They were out of obligation. They ought to give up so much to, to work so hard and to achieve something like that. No. For joy over it, I think that they sacrificed a tremendous amount to be able to attain that. And that's just a small picture, I think, of our lives. That, that what Jesus is asking for us is big. It's a big sacrifice. And I think what's great about books like Esther, where it challenges us with these big things, it also allows us to view it in kind of a small way. Mordecai then says this, perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this. This one individual decision, this moment in your life where God is asking you to sacrifice something. And I wonder if you'd think about that. Instead of thinking about this massive idea of sacrificing everything for Jesus, which is absolutely important, just think about one thing tomorrow. What's one thing that you've been holding back from surrendering to Jesus' authority. Just something tomorrow. And it doesn't have to be big. But then the next day, think about the next thing you might surrender to Jesus' authority so that each and every day you're taking incremental steps to surrender more and more in your life to Jesus and to watch the people around you respond to what they see coming out of your life. That kind of love and that kind of forgiveness and that kind of peace that consumes our life from being a part of Jesus' movement. Let's go ahead and stand together and pray. We'll sing one more song together. God, I'm so grateful for um, this church, for what you're doing here. I'm thankful for our relationship with you, God, and that we've got each other to, to support us and to encourage us. I pray for, um, for our continued time together, Lord. Teach us more and more how we can surrender to you, serve you with all of our lives, uh, not because we feel obligated or out of a duty or something like that, but because you're inviting us into watching you work and being a part of what you're doing in this world. So we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.